72%, the share of firms which have experienced challenges in the switch to remote work spurred by the pandemic. The data are from a survey of New York City business leaders, who also report it is somewhat likely the share of their workforce working from home at least part-time will increase in the next year relative to pre-pandemic levels. The switch to remote work has turned the model on which NYC has functioned for decades, that is, bringing huge amounts of people into Manhattan from the outer boroughs and outer regions, on its head. And there is a lot of discussion about whether this will be an enduring change, and if so, how extensive it will be and how it will reshape commercial office space and activity in the city. One of the many exciting questions to be discussed on this episode of What's the Data Point? I'm Maria Dulles, Vice President of the CBC, and I welcome you to the latest episode of What's the Data Point? Today, we bring you a special conversation of business leaders from several key New York City economic sectors. CBC convened a panel of its trustees to discuss how the pandemic was reshaping their business and how they believe their sectors and the city as a whole will be different in the short term and in the long term. The panel was moderated by Jake Elganian, Vice President of TF Cornerstone, and featured five panelists representing firms in real estate, finance, law, health, and job development. They were Melissa Birch, Executive General Manager of New York Development for Lend-Lease Americas, Andrew Kimball, the Chief Executive Officer of Industry City, Steve Lippin, Chairman and CEO of Gladstone Place Partners, Edward Wallace, Co-Chairman of the New York Office of Greenberg Charig, and Patricia Wong, Chief Executive Officer, Health First. I'll let you listen to the conversation, but the group generally gives high marks to New York's prospects for recovery and resilience through these health, economic, and fiscal crises. Enjoy the conversation, be well, and we'll catch you again soon. So I guess the first question, I'm going to start pretty broad, which is, um, what is the biggest challenge that the pandemic has created for your business or organization? And we'll start with uh, Melissa Birch. Oh, and, and by the way, I should mention that just in the interest of time, I've put everybody's uh, names and bios in the, the chat function and skip the introductions. Thanks so much. Um, hello, everyone. Good morning. Um, so uh, getting right to the heart of the matter, Jake, with responding to your question about where have we been most changed um, you know, speaking from the perspective of the property uh, and uh, real estate industry and specifically at Lendlease, um, we've seen uh, changes, I sort of bucket them into functional, financial, and existential. Um, on the functional side, the um, uh, construction was part of the phase one reopening of New York. Uh, we are uh, building projects all over New York City, uh, really all over the world. Um, and we've seen um, both sort of high-tech and low-tech uh, changes to the way that job sites operate, um, everything from thermal scans to uh, lots of uh, sanitizing and uh, disinfecting and social distancing. Um, but we are seeing job sites reopen. We are seeing construction activity resume in New York uh, successfully. Um, and of course, a lot of this is uh, helped by the very low infection rates that we reopened into and uh, look to um, uh, maintain at those low levels. Um, in terms of uh, financial, uh, real estate is a levered um, uh, uh, sector. 
Uh, we require that the debt capital markets are functioning and the debt capital markets have been largely closed or from our view, severely disrupted. Um, while we have been able to consummate some uh, construction loans recently and other refinancings, we're finding that many of these projects were sort of conceived of pre-COVID and that these uh, deals and refinancings were able to happen really based off of um, uh, uh, strong uh, relationships and sponsor strength um, and the underlying quality of the asset. But the question is, will we be able to initiate sort of new financings and access the capital markets for uh, new projects that have been conceived of in this time? And then lastly, um, you know, I talk about the existential changes and that's, uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll touch on that, but I feel like there is quite a dialogue that is happening within our industry around um, offices. What is their purpose? Do companies need office space? Um, what will, uh, you know, the implications of work from home and, and remote working have um, in the near term and long term on office uh, landlords and office users? And how does the industry need to evolve? Um, and I think we are at a inflection point of thinking about that evolution. And I hope we uh, touch on uh, some of those aspects uh, later in our discussion. Definitely me as well. It was interesting to see the survey about all the remote work views and, and, and things like that. It seems like it's starting to coalesce into something a little bit more uh, manageable for us uh, real estate owners. But uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll continue moving through the panel with the sort of more open-ended question of, of how is your business uh, coping with the pandemic and maybe go to, to, to Pat. Thanks, Jake. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm the CEO of Health First, which is a community-based regional not-for-profit health insurance plan that predominantly uh, serves uh, folks uh, on the lower income part of the, the um, income scale and uh, relies on government programs like Medicaid and Medicare in particular. So I would say that there are three areas also like Melissa. Um, we definitely crossed the digital divide um, as a result of the pandemic um, because we are local and because our members have relied a lot on face-to-face -face contact with us in the community, community offices and so forth. Um, very multilingual, um, you know, new immigrant populations who need a lot of support in understanding how to access health insurance and health care. Um, so we have been, we have sort of gone into hyperdrive to figure out, as we put it, how to be closer when we have to be far apart. Keeping members safe in their homes, um, those with COVID who had to be hospitalized, um, thank goodness we have uh, the hospital system that we do, but for those who were not infected, uh, trying to keep people safe in their homes was a very, very big challenge um, and required a lot of outreach, etc. cetera. Um, the, uh, that, I think, led to a greater awareness of the role of social determinants of health in people's ability to really access healthcare and um, the racial disparities and the results uh, from COVID mortality rates, infection rates is, is sort of underscores that. Um, the biggest crisis that happened with our members during the pandemic was, was food insecurity because so many food pantries shut down, people couldn't get out of their homes, but the, the crossing the digital divide meant um, not just sending, uh, you know, two thirds of our workforce home, one third had already been there and doing it quickly 
and trying to deal with the employee uh, adjustment to work from home with kids running around and schools closed. Um, it was also finding ways to communicate with our members and make things easier. We actually developed some things that uh, the State Department of Health is allowing us to continue that would eliminate its healthcare, Medicaid, Obamacare. It's, it's a very paper driven application process, strangely enough. Um, and uh, the ability to do things through text with a helper on the other end of the phone um, and upload documents securely, for example, to the New York State of Health, the exchange was, was useful. Um, the final big impact on us, which is going to be lasting, is just the crisis in funding for Medicaid and Medicare. Um, New York State, fortunately, is a coverage committed state, so we had lots of products for people to fall into when they were losing employer-sponsored insurance. People lost employer-sponsored insurance. They have Medicaid coverage now um, and are discovering what a tremendously good insurance product that is. And, the benefits available. Um, folks who were in Obamacare products fell down to the next level or the next level. But uh, so our membership has expanded tremendously, uh, but the state was already cutting its Medicaid budget um, because of uh, gaps between revenue and costs before this thing began. It's, it's, it's gonna be very challenging going forward. Thanks. Thank you, Pat. You know, I, I'm, I'm probably supposed to ask this later, but while you're on the topic, I guess, how do you see the affordability debate um, sort of progressing in the future? I mean, now that we have this sort of somewhat acute issue in New York and, and elsewhere. The short answer is it's absolutely going to continue. It's going to be a reality at the federal level for Medicare funding, as well as at the state level. There's, it's going to be very intense. And you know, given what's happened in the economy and the reliance, uh, the increased reliance on publicly financed programs as opposed to employer sponsored, it's it's going to create tremendous pressure on a state budget that's already broke and a federal budget that's projecting the um, exhaustion of the Medicare trust fund in 2023, as opposed to some of the uh, out years that had previously been projected. It's going to be a big topic of conversation, definitely. So I guess we can all be hopeful that this will be a, a source of debate in the uh, the presidential debates coming up soon. Sounds like it will. Um, maybe we'll move on to Steve and, and hear a little bit about what you're hearing in, in the financial industry and otherwise. Sure. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, so Gladstone, uh, as a communications firm, represent uh, represents large large public companies that are. Um, you know, in New York, the likes of Anheuser-Busch InBev or Pfizer. We also do a lot of transaction work. So mergers and acquisitions um, is, is a, a big chunk of our, our business. Um, and not surprisingly, notwithstanding a couple of deals announced this week, M&A is, is down quite significantly. Um, and so the banks, you know, so I think corporations, are, as I see it, are a grappling with what, you know, uh, Melissa talked about, what Denise talked about. Um, I think Wall Street and the financial services industry, um, you know, on the one hand, and we have banks earning, uh, banks reporting earnings this week. Um, and if you compared it to 08, 09, 
you know, we, we have the economy basically tanking, but the banks are really quite strong. Um, and 10, 12 years ago, it was a little bit of the reverse. The banks are in much stronger condition. The banks have also, um, you know, learned their lesson. There's something now called the shadow banking industry, right? So, um, wow, the, the banks are clearly uh, much safer um, and they are being proactive in, in um, putting aside capital for future losses, whether it's corporations or individuals. Um, the banks are still a reflection of the economy more broadly. And I, I'm not worried about the likes of JP Morgan and Citi and Goldman, but um, you have to be concerned about where, you know, when, well, I shouldn't say when, if, if we hit this perfect storm of, of um, unemployment and uh, people start with unemployment ending with forbearance ending, you know, there's a lot of chatter that I'm hearing about the so-called perfect storm coming uh, in the city on uh, and particularly, and Pat alluded to it with regard to middle and working class families who don't have much savings. Um, so I'll, I'll summarize by just saying, um, on the one hand, um, I feel a lot more confident that our banking system, that our New York City financial system is much stronger and will endure. Uh, I'm very worried about, um, as I said, the so-called shadow banking system, uh, where there could be a lot of risk outside of the uh, official banking system and, and very concerned about uh, fears of this, of this so-called perfect storm. And that's why, again, you're seeing, you know, banks setting aside um, capital for future losses. The last point I would make is um, banks are rethinking putting five and 10,000 people into one building. I mean, that's nothing new that you've hearing over the past four months, but I'm seeing it. And you have some banks are trying to encourage people to come back and they're not getting much more than sort of five, 10% capacity. So there's not a lot of excitement about heading back into uh, an, an office building full of, of people, at least from my, my perspective. Interesting, certainly a concerning topic for the city in, in that case. Um, but maybe we'll move on to Andrew and hear a little bit about how uh, the challenges that Industry City and, uh, and, your, and your tenants are facing. Uh, thanks, Jake, and good morning, everyone. Um, so I run Industry City. It's a 6 million square foot, 16 building um, complex on the Brooklyn waterfront. And we've seen extraordinary growth over the last eight years, threefold increases in small businesses and jobs. We have about 550 small businesses, 8,000 jobs. Um, but because 90% of those companies have fewer than 10 employees, we're really at the eye of the storm in terms of small businesses being impacted. So that, that obviously is our major challenge. Um, just a few observations in terms of other impacts and some of them have silver linings. So we have about a million square feet of manufacturing. It's the largest uh, uh, congregation of manufacturing in a private complex anywhere in the city. And so many of those companies pivoted immediately to PPE manufacture, whether it's ice shields or hospital gowns or hand sanitizers. Then the importance of warehouse distribution uh, around that equipment. So hospitals are working with us, emergency services. Um, and then also last mile distribution, an exploding sector before 
the pandemic, even more so now, people wanting home goods and food delivered to their homes. Uh, I'd say another trend we're seeing is the innovation economy, the creative economy, both office and makerspace, um, with companies taking another look at being in the density of Manhattan and the benefits of being in the outer borough. Uh, along the Brooklyn-Queens waterfront, closer to where their employees live, shorter commute, less time in the dense environment of Manhattan. Um, and certainly tech is, is a huge winner here. It's horrible to say they're winners in this terrible moment, but the very fact that we're having this conversation and the way we're having this conversation this morning speaks to tech. Um, I'd say the other thing that's been reaffirming is the importance of our vision of where we want to take Industry City, which is adding even more diversity of sectors, most critically academic, and embedding them uh, in the campus where you're creating pathways uh, for people into jobs in the innovation economy, and certainly in this moment of equity and racial reckoning. Um, so, so important, and we're very hopeful that the city can figure out a way to restart ULERP so we can see our, through, our way through that rezoning. And then I'd also say, well, obviously, a lot of our businesses and some of us who work for Industry City are working remotely. Um, I believe there is a real spirit and hope that once we are through this, the need to be together and back in community and the kind of ecosystem we're creating is going to be stronger than ever. I don't think people are going to stay sitting at home working on, on Zoom uh, once we're through this crisis. I certainly agree and, and uh, started to see that already just with a few, a few of our people coming back. Um, so I'll keep, keep moving through and, and maybe turn to Jesse. And you know, again, the question being, how, how has the pandemic affected your business at, at Carmera? Yeah, just quickly, I'm not sure how familiar everyone on the call is with Carmera. We're um, a high definition mapping company for autonomous vehicles. So um, you can think of these not like the infotainment maps in your car or on your phone, but these are actually the virtual railroad tracks that every autonomous vehicle needs uh, to navigate. And we've been, we were founded in Brooklyn about two, uh, five years ago. Um, in terms of like what the pandemic's immediate impact to our business, um, I would say I am also very eager to get back into an office. We, uh, as a company, have a lot of experience working from home. We did so routinely every Thursday from Carmera's inception. Uh, a big portion of our team, in fact, half of our team is in Seattle. Uh, so we have, um, you know, we're constantly on Zoom anyway. Um, but I think that this shift to a permanent work from home situation as a startup, I think there are a lot of young parents, uh, myself included, who work at Carmera. And so balancing um, childcare and productivity uh, has been, I think, one of the most concrete impacts. I think as, as a lot of folks have mentioned, uh, tech has been in a good position to sort of weather the storm. And I, I'm happy to talk more about the tech sector's perspective on that. But I do think just the day-to-day -day impact of productivity on your business and managing childcare when that's 90% of your team um, is, a very, is a very real uh, thing that might be um, uh, sort of unique to Carmera or, or unique to, to, to folks in this stage of company. Um, you know, the other big impact, which 
surprised me a bit. I mean, we talked we talked a little bit about the supply chain, but we have a very digital supply chain, uh, and it's global. And this pandemic obviously has has really spared no part of the world. And so, the digital supply chain we've exposed a little bit of a weakness in that, which is that as everyone moves to work from home, um, some folks, you know, some of our vendors, depending on where they are, didn't have the, the connectivity in their homes. And so thinking about how we were actually going to, you know, help help our vendors stand back up uh, and be able to serve us was a question that we uh, grappled with. But fortunately, we're well equipped to, to help them um, stand up their, their own work from home environments. Um, and then the last thing is really like, as we think about just employee well-being and what it is to manage a company remotely, I think we've had to really rethink some of our KPIs, like the the sort of performance indicators for um, employees, but also at Carmera, I mean, Carmera, there were, were um, about 60 full-time people, and that is really one of the largest close-knit communities that I'm a part of, and I think for so many people who work there. And so as we think about how we can really be supportive of each other in the community in this moment, uh, I think that that's been one of the, the um the, I, I would not say silver lining, but it's certainly been a positive outcome of this is that we've really started to think of, of work, not just as a place you go nine to five, but like we're in the trenches together as a, as a startup anyway, and how you're extending that into other aspects of your life, I think has, has been a nice part of this experience. Uh, definitely, definitely. And to, on that point, um, the best article I read about remote work was about a travel agency that did this experiment sort of sending some people to work from remote and some people at the office. And this was pre-COVID. And they had sort of very discreet KPIs for, for you know, answering the phone and that kind of stuff. And at the end of the whole thing, they found that people were a little bit more efficient. But then they gave everybody the option of either working remotely or in the office. And like 85% came back to the office because they just missed the, the, their colleagues effectively. Um, so anyway, it's interesting to hear you say that about having your 60-person your, uh, unit. So lastly, on this broad question, maybe I'll turn to Ed and just hear how, how Greenberg and law firms are, are handling the pandemic. Oh, uh, Ed, I think you're still muted. There we go. Hey, uh, Greenberg Charg is a 40 office worldwide firm, probably one of the largest in New York. I'm the co-chair with about 500 employees, 300 of whom roughly uh, lawyers. Uh, for better or for worse, lawyers are here to stay in New York. It's an epicenter uh, of law in the world, both the, the commercial decisions made in our courthouses and the Wall Street transactions, and interesting real estate transactions as well, um, where, where we are quite active. Uh, what's changed, uh, and, and I would just give a historic perspective, uh, Cravath, Swain and Moore, one of our most prestigious American law firms, uh, switched to remote work by moving to 8th Avenue and uh, 51st Street about 30, 40 years ago, expecting the world to come with them. They also went to more or less uniform-sized offices. Uh, so they were a thought leader then. What we did and what I think most law firms uh, confront is the following. We can pivot. First of all, bankruptcies will go up. Transactions may go down. Litigation will eventually come back as the courthouses open. To Denise's point, the uh, Perry Mason moment, the gotcha moment of the witness on the stand is harder to achieve virtually. Uh, it's surprising to us uh, that the court system didn't more quickly get back into business. By the way, same is true to Andrew's point about City Hall. The Euler 
we're doing these meetings virtually, but these other functions of government aren't really happening uh, at the same level, although Supreme Court decides cases. Um, what will happen to us is that uh, we did not lay off anybody, uh, kind of as a commitment to the idea that this was a global pandemic and this was not simply a financial disruption. But as we, and the first half was strong, as we confront the end of the year and the year next, I think we will do what we've always done, which is try to uh, meet the market, meaning uh, staff up where their activity and either transfer people or pair back otherwise. The sad fact of law is that people can be, the headcount can be increased or decreased. Uh, the real estate is a fixed cost. So what's happening there? Um, the doubled up and tripled up uh, uh, associate office, the buzz of last year, which is that uh, the millennials really love to work in group settings and open pits. I think that idea just fell by the wayside. So we will take more real estate per lawyer, in a sense, uh, more offices per lawyer, You know, each lawyer getting in a discrete space, but all of us partners and everybody will just take less space per, per senior person. So it probably balances out the uh, idea of collaboration is key in law. So uh, being in the office together, working on projects, I think remains, but I'll close with this. Um, I think that um, we, we look at this as a stress test. You know, we, it hit us in Beijing and then it hit us in Seoul and then it hit us in Milan. So by the time we got to New York, I wouldn't say we were ready, nobody really was, but we were understanding the impacts. For us, remote work uh, was always a little factor. Um, there were people who, for personal reasons, um, childcare reasons, other reasons, were on schedules that required some remote work. We now have to master that as a management tool. You know, we have metrics, we have billable hours, we can measure very carefully how hard people work, and of course, we can measure how what percentage of billings are collected. And I want the world to believe it's 100%. But um, uh, we, I think the challenge to everybody here, but certainly to the law sector, which will stay vibrant in New York, is how do we integrate the remote concept with the in-office uh, work that we know? So it's not either war, it's part of, a, of an overall way of managing a practice. It can reduce some of our real estate costs, sorry to say that, Jake. But overall, it, it, it's going to be um, about efficiency, productivity, uh, but you know, law is here to stay. I guess the, the, that's a good note to, to, to finish your statement on. But I guess I wanted to ask a little bit of a follow-up question where, so you sort of see that people will be, continue working remote some of the time, but sort of there'll be more expectations over time for people to come back into the office, or, or I guess you're still grappling with all, how that, that constellation of workplaces will. Right, so, so you know, we have uh, 29 offices in the United States. Uh, each state, of course, has been a little different. And the, uh, and the uh, pandemic has been different. So our Minneapolis office is a little different from our Miami office right now. Uh, our ethos is, um, was always back to work, but back to workplace when it's safe and productive. So we have opened in New York on, on, you know, in accordance with the guidelines. It is a little eerie. I don't think anybody's saying, oh, this is great, or it's even more efficient to the point of efficiency. Um, and I think what we try to be, look, we were tech savvy early on with technology was a big capital investment for us. That paid a big dividend in this. We were able to really communicate, but we instituted 
activities to, I think Andrew said, we, we are stronger than we ever were. We have morning, I insisted in my group of an eight o'clock morning meeting every day up until Memorial Day and people groaned. And I said, you're getting back two hours by not, you know, having to, you know, get gussied up and travel. Let's, let's put it to good purpose. And so that, those are the lessons learned. Uh, but when will we be back full, full boat or even half boat? I suspect uh, hopefully mid to late fall, but on a very regimented, very, and, and remember getting into buildings, Jake, uh, and I think, you know, you may ask me later, but the whole protocol for how many in an elevator, how many upstairs, all of that puts drag on the enthusiasm for being in the office. Uh, so again, I, I, I think this is a stress test and we should learn from it and we should work in spite of it and then be thought leaders and try to get the government to get back to business because that's where the, all of our professions and all of our industries will, will thrive as if there's building going on, if there's expansions going on, if there's recruitments occurring um, and we're not there yet. Thank you, Ed. I, maybe on that note, I'll turn to Melissa and sort of maybe see what you're seeing on the same topic and then, and then to the extent that you wanna take it a second question, how are you seeing on a cross-border perspective um, both for sort of return to office and construction development progressing. Uh, <clears throat> thank you for those questions. And um, I, I, you know, I think there, are, you know, obviously all of our companies touch real estate um, in some way, shape, or form. Um, so it, it, it is um, interesting to sort of compare notes and, and see, you know, the similarities uh, really across sectors um, in terms of how we're grappling with this. Um, you know, Ed, you touched on, um, and, and I like to speak about, you know, we've been in this remote working experiment where we were all under, uh, you know, for office workers, a lockdown where we were, you know, told that we had to be at home. So we know that when everyone is 100% remote with no other option, it works, I think, surprisingly well. And um, I think that many have reported that they've been, you know, very efficient and very effective. Um, you know, in maintaining the pace and, uh, you know, caliber of their work. Um, I think we know that an all-office environment works. That's what we came from. Um, you know, I think the big question is the hybrid world where you have, um, you know, I do think that employers will be, and I certainly see this from Lend-Lease, uh, will be highly prioritizing worker safety, health, and comfort. And the return to the office will be uh, very gradual. It will be um, uh, um, uh, very focused on sort of worker comfort around commutes, around being in spaces, uh, you know, public spaces with other people. And so it will be a gradual transition back. And therefore, I expect that we will have a very significant period in this hybrid which is different on some level than everyone working from home on Thursdays or you know, where, where, where there's consistency and uniformity to the structure and the way that employees are um, sort of pacing their work arrangements. This is gonna be highly individualized. And to Ed's com uh, um, comment, I think it's going to create a lot of interesting sort of um, stresses on managers, but also really it's going to create a lot of new demands on managers, on KPIs, to Jesse's comment, how are you really managing this and prioritizing this as a, um, you know, manager and as an executive team, uh, things like worker health and safety. Um, 
this dialogue around worker health and safety, I mean, I, I'm, uh, construction is a huge part of the Lend-Lease uh, portfolio globally, um, in addition to our other property activities. Uh, so that is a high risk uh, environment. Safety is at the foremost of our company culture. And I think really drove a lot of the sort of early moves that the company had around um, uh, protecting its, its workforce, uh, you know, in the early stages of this pandemic. Um, we are a global firm. So like many have commented, we sort of saw this happening in, you know, Asia, um, you know, you know, before it happened in Milan, we have a very large outpost in Milan for our business. Um, our company headquarters is in Australia. Um, so we really saw this sort of ripple across the globe before it came to be uh, fully impactful here in New York. Um, and while I agree no one was fully prepared for the extent of the, you know, of the fear and the uncertainty and what it means to sort of be in this moment, um, I do think that the focus on worker health and safety will be the priority for firms. Um, we took very early steps to cut travel, limit travel. I expect that that will uh, be something that stays with us for a long time. Um, and, um, you know, beyond that, um, you know, convening, being in groups, there are going to be new protocols that will uh, remain for a while. So as I look to to those other markets. One thing I've seen though, is that there have been periods of re-entry back to offices, then coupled by retreatments back into some form of lockdown, um, government mandated lockdown. So I think that as I sort of look to some of these other markets across Lend-Lease, I think the one thing that I take with me here is that this is not necessarily like a switch on, a switch off. Um, it, it's, a, it's a continuum. And I think that we're gonna have areas of improvement then coupled by having to backtrack. And then that's part of this. It's not necessarily sort of a, uh, you know, we can sort of debate if that's like a leadership, uh, you know, inadequacy. Um, it may be part of the way in which, you know, the virus um, it, uh, manifests itself. Um, and so I think as businesses and as companies, we need to be prepared for um, what will be, I think, a bumpy ride over the next 18 months as we look to re-engage and reinst and restart ourselves in this, you know, public domain, and all come back out of our houses again. I think I think that's a really interesting comment, and I think it's not something that at least I perceive has been communicated as much from um, whether it be in, you know locally or nationally. And so I'm just curious to turn to Steve as a communications expert. You know how how have our leaders been at communicating uh, in this crisis, and you know what should they be doing better? Yeah, it's been a real uh, case study in crisis communications. Um, and we look to our, well, we look to our business leaders and we look to our civic and political leaders for, you know, for true leadership. And I think we could look now three or four months later and say who's done well and who hasn't from a crisis communications standpoint. Our clients, I mean, it was, you know, COVID struck right as a lot of companies were reporting earnings in early and mid-March, at least we had clients. So what do you say about future guidance? What do you say about health and safety? So we have, you know, we have clients that are 
you know, white collar workers and we have clients who's, uh, who run food factories, who, uh, you know, trucking and logistics, who, where they're supporting frontline workers. And, you know, we've been talking about how we've all been sort of staying at home. And, and of course, many of our, our clients have frontline workers who are helping support all of us through the supply chain and things like that. Um, those who have done it well um, have been authentic and candid. Um, and so then after COVID, of course, then we had um, the awful killings of, of young black people. And then we went right into sort of Black Lives Matter. And yet, so from a CEO or governor, mayor, yet another crisis in terms of how do you act? How do you react? What do you say? How candid will you be? Okay. Um, you could look at Sam, you know, CEOs wanted to rush out after the George Floyd killing and, and talk about all the things that they want to do, which is largely future oriented and how much they cared. But what I think it also revealed is just um, the lack of diversity in, in the business world writ large. And so a lot of our clients are trying to think through, all right, this is, this is it. Now we're gonna, you know, we're gonna put the same metrics um, that we use for earnings and cash flow on <clears throat> racial equality and diversity. So I think those who have succeeded um, have sort of taken those issues head on. But if you step way back and we could all do our own survey of the last four months, who do you think have been, you know, the most successful uh, leaders in terms of crisis communications? And, you know, I have to say that I think Governor, Governor Cuomo clearly has to be up there. Um, his little art project yesterday was a little weird. Um, and then you could then say, and uh, Jacinda Ardern of the, the Prime Minister of, of uh, you know, of New Zealand. Who else has, has stepped up in such a way? Now, I have corporate clients who I think I've done a really great job, like Julie Sweet of Accenture, another important employer in New York City, where she went on CNBC and she said, Black Lives Matter, which not every CEO has been saying, and she said, there is racism in Accenture. So uh, CEOs who have been authentic, but also like truly been um, candid and forthright and sort of have to look at their companies in the mirror. Um, I'll make one final point. You know, a lot of companies want credit for what they are going to do. We have metrics and we have targets and what we hear back from journalists, and I used to be a journalist, so you could work, work at the Wall Street Journal before I got into communications is, it's still talk. Let's see action. Let's see results as opposed to, I want credit for giving targets of, of, of racial and uh, ethnic balance. So I'll shut up, but I think this has been a moment where, and, and this, this Zoom is filled with business leaders, an amazing group, I must say, I'm, I'm very happy to be on this panel, but the whole, all the trustees are business leaders. And so we all sort of have to learn from successes and failures of others and, and how we step up. Um, and uh, it's not about 
getting credit. It's about doing the right thing. And I think those who succeed in crisis communications, it's sort of the, the latter. Well, very good points. I, I guess on a similar theme, Andrew, and you know, in, in the survey, I noticed a lot of people were were um, concerned about the future viability of small businesses and small manufacturers um, in New York, and, and sort of Steve's comment somewhat touched on concerns about inequity in this whole pandemic in general. How, how you know, there's there, it's 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 uh, revealed a lot of the inequities in our system. I guess what are you seeing in Industry City? And then maybe I'll sort of tack on one last question, if that's not too much, which is that you also hear a little bit about onshoring um, in the manufacturing space. And is that having, is, will that only apply to the sort of heartland of American manufacturing? Will that also help um, New York City's manufacturing businesses? Um, yeah, so the last 15 years between running the Navy Yard and Industry City, um, there has been a bottomless pit of demand for space for really small businesses being in a community where they interface with each other, business to business, they share ideas, um, they grow together. Uh, and I've heard through uh, post 9-11, through the fiscal crisis, through Storm Sandy, oh, there's a glut of this kind of creative space on the Brooklyn Queens waterfront. There has never been a glut. It's always gotten filled. And so, you know, yes, that that segment is going to get hit very, very hard, is getting hit very, very hard. You know, we, we did double, triple backflips to help our uh, small tenants access PPP, including advocating with the banks to pay attention both in the first round and in the second round. Um, but they're now burning through that. Um, if they can pay rent, they're expected to pay rent. If they can't pay rent, we're going to work with them and we're working with them. There's now an extra layer of stress that I see, and we are open, we're moving back. Some of our small businesses are moving back, but most of these are entrepreneurs who are 25 to 35, and they are so stressed. And they're stressed because they're having to pivot their business to all online. They're stressed because they have young kids and they don't know what's gonna happen in the fall. They're stressed because they think there's gonna be a boomerang of, of the peak back to New York, and, and that could very well um, happen. So. Uh, that said, I remain very, very confident about that, that sector of small businesses. That, that is really the innovation economy for really, really small companies, the broad range of making a physical, a digital, or an engineered product. That's been the backbone of the city's economy I've seen for the last 10 years, and that's going to uh, come back. Do I think large-scale manufacturing is coming back? No. But I do think this small niche manufacturing is here to say, do I think that all of a sudden we're going to have 100,000 square foot manufacturing complexes making uh, PPEs in New York City? No, probably not. Could I see that in upstate New York with deliveries down to the city? Possibly. Could I see it in other parts of the country? Possibly. Um, I did just want to comment on, on a couple of things Steve said, because I thought they were really insightful. I mean, in, from my entire adult life, um, you know, I have heard from primarily from Republicans, but also from Democrats, like government is the problem. Government needs to get out of the way. We need to shrink government. Okay, where would we all be right now without government? We'd be completely toast. So as inept as some of the federal government's response has been, without PPP, forget about it. Um, and, but I do agree, we need to do so much more. And we need to do more at the state level. I think the governor's been brilliant but we've got to do more. We've got to start driving investment and in infrastructure. 
I was really hardened yesterday to read Biden's plan around um, green infrastructure and jobs and uh, environmental justice and a $2 trillion plan. I mean, in, in most elections, people will be like, what, $2 trillion? I think now people are like, yeah, bring it. We need those jobs and we need the equity and we need to create training pipelines for uh, diverse populations, for people of color, not just to get into those sectors, but to allow them to succeed as entrepreneurs because that's where the real power uh, lies. We need to create ownership pathways uh, into these sectors uh, for folks. That's where you really get to equity, in my opinion, in the city. That's great. And I want to continue on that sort of hopeful, more future-looking um, path and sort of return to everybody. I think while I'm doing that, I'll just mention, I think this will be the last round of panelist questions. So if, if there's uh, viewers who want to put in their questions, use the, use the Zoom function now, and then I'll read them out at the end. But so on that last note, I, you know, I guess Rahm Emanuel once said, never let a crisis go to waste. Um, and so with that in mind, if everybody could just think a little bit about in your industries, what, what are the opportunities to sort of build the, the building blocks for future growth in the city or otherwise from this crisis and, and, and or how will things look 10 years from now? And maybe I'll start with Pat, if that's okay. So I, I love the question about 10 years from now. Um, I've been a long time resident of New York City. I love the city. I believe in its resilience. It's going through a really tough time right now. Um, but 10 years from now, I think the city is gonna be a very vibrant place. I loved the article or the vision uh, written by Farhad Manju that was published in the New York Times not long ago about fewer cars, less pollution, a greener city with phenomenal public transportation that people feel is safe and clean uh, to get to and from work. Um, 10 years from now, the city will be completely wired and enable broadband access uh, to every nook and cranny of the population. Um, it's, a, it's a big cause of disparities now and it's going to grow. So everybody will have equal access to broadband for education as well as healthcare. I hope that Andrew Kimball is, um, you know, gonna keep doing what he's doing because his vision for small businesses and the importance of um, uh, entrepreneurship is so critically important. So state and city policies, federal policies will support explicitly the return of local small businesses. There will be no food deserts in New York City because among the efforts, uh, whether it's small business or otherwise, we will have addressed the lack of fresh food. Um, and as far as the healthcare system is concerned, I do think that the, uh, the, the, the revenue crisis caused by what's been going on is gonna put tremendous pressure on states and the federal government. I hope that what comes out of it is a more integrated way to support and finance healthcare in America. Um, in New York City in particular, I hope that the healthcare system is more integrated, uh, both hospitals as well as community resources, as well as community-based organizations that can address social determinants issues, um, and that the system will operate efficiently through enabled by digital and with global budgets or whatever you want to call them that return 
money into the delivery system so that it is a more efficient and unified uh, way of operating. Cheers to that. Question. I, 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 I love the hopefulness. Um, maybe just continuing on, on your mention of the, the New York Times article and Vishan Chakrabarti's work on the streets, maybe I'll turn to Jesse and see um, a little bit of, I don't know if that, how much that inter intersects with what Carmara does, but it was a, I, I loved the vision of reimagining New York streets. Is, is that a, can, can we make it happen? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, I, how many of these, I'm just, I find them so frustrating, these like dumb eulogies for New York City that I read. I'm never gonna move away from the, I'm never gonna move into the bet against New York camp. I think that, um, I think that when you look at what New York City just went through, not just the slope of the curve up, but the slope of the curve down, it is a horrific story. And there are many lessons to learn from it. And it wasn't perfect. Um, but I think the big part of the story that gives me so much hope is that it's getting the curve down and getting it down as fast as we could and keeping it there. And that is only possible because of the commitment that New Yorkers have made to each other. And it's the kind of empathy that frankly, you aren't seeing elsewhere in the US right now. Um, and I'm one of those people who I grew up on a farm in East Tennessee, and I moved to New York on purpose. Um, and so um, as a part of like the proud New Yorker by choice, I think that that social compact, and this is getting to your question, Jake, but I think it's an important point, is like that social compact in New York is what has always been strong and attractive about the city, but it's stronger now than ever. Um, and so I think the question is like, what do you do with that empathy? How can we put that to good use thinking about the next decade of New York? And I, I don't think it takes a lot of creative thinking. I think you have to look out the window and see what people are asking for and are doing. And really in this moment, they're asking for community space and more communal space. And so when I think about what does New York look like in the next 10 years, I think that the most positive outcome from this horrible moment is a stronger commitment to, from all of us, including our leaders to um, communal space. Uh, so the right leadership, like I think that it's the sort of creative thinking that got us and, you know, some of the businesses at Industry City that Andrew was talking about, building ventilators in a month at, at New Lab, like the public policy implications of giving community space, like prioritizing community space, I think really are important. And, and that's why the next marriage race matters a lot. It's, um, it's committing to reduce the cars, um, creating bike lanes and micro mobility, I think equitably funding green space in all the boroughs really matters. I think we're seeing more than ever um, this sort of need for people to have some kind of social interaction but a safe distance and safe green space. I think the other piece of this, and we could spend a whole other day talking about it, but is like, how do you make New York a true five borough economy? Um, getting the commercial core out of Midtown so that people are within a, a more manageable commute of um, where they live. I think that, you know, just the, the sort of last thing I'll say is we can talk about some of the price adjustments going on, particularly in, in the city as a bad thing. Um, I think that if we can think about it and make sure that we're making the right investments in infrastructure and education, we can actually think about it as um, an opportunity to make New York more affordable and genuinely more affordable. Um, and that combined with, I think, what we have as the 
natural asset in New York, density and diversity and industry expertise, I think that, you know, that isn't going away. And so it's really our job to make sure that we come out of all of this with the kind of commitments, both from the city leadership and to each other um, to make sure that uh, we're stronger than ever. So I'm, I'm very hopeful about what New York looks like and um, would be perfectly fine if we're able to um, reclaim the streets <laughs> from, from vehicles to put a, a fine point on it. Great. I, I love the emphasis on the social compact. I feel like you don't hear about that. At least I haven't read about that as much in, in relation to the, um, to the coronavirus and response. And, and I love thinking that New York is, is, for whatever reason, has a stronger compact left than, than, uh, than we might give it credit for sometimes. Um, I guess I'll, I'll open up the question to anybody who wants to jump in or I can start randomly calling on people. Jay, can I just say that I think Jessica is the epitome of why this city will be vibrant in 10 years. We, I came here at 17. Speaker Corey Johnson came to the city at 17. What did we want? We wanted a place where we could be ourselves. We wanted a place where we could live and let live. We wanted a place that maybe had creativity and excitement where diversity was at least a, uh, an understood thing, even if it wasn't uh, true in all cases in all places. And I think um, that spirit that makes this a unique place on earth, okay? Paris is beautiful and London is civilized. New York is exciting, uh, as an old uncle of mine used to say. And it's exciting because we like each other, we put up with each other, uh, we, there's no king of New York, you know. It's not Mike Bloomberg, it's not David Rockefeller. There are a lot of people in a lot of sectors who say this is my town and don't worry about anybody being their boss. So I, I think the real thing is what lessons did we learn? How quickly do we adapt? And, um, um, you know, never forgetting that there are problems. Homeless to me being the scourge of the city and maybe a moment when building a lot of affordable and assisted living housing will help the development sector will help us address that problem. Uh, and, and we'll just get back to, to the wonderful city that we love. I, I, I'm not worried about the long term. I'm anxious about the next year and a half. Uh, I completely agree, Adam. That, that's a, a rousing message. Um, and yeah, I, I guess for, and personally, I guess I hope that they are able to put some of those, those hotel beds to use as an affordable housing, or like you said, senior living, or, or basically uh, get more people uh, in, get more people of uh, diverse backgrounds and diverse income levels back in Midtown, effectively. I love all of our leaders who have stepped in and done things, but, and I wasn't alive uh, when FDR was president, but where's the TVA? Where's the, the bold new way of getting things done, putting people to work virtually to clean up some of the government's uh, backlogs, uh, training people, all of that boldness has to come. And I'm hopeful that as we approach September, uh, we'll get that next part of the agenda. But that's where it's the bold agenda. The city became a paradise over the last 20 years. People stay and raise children here. The reason the boroughs are thriving, and by the way, public safety is not nothing. It's, it's do people feel that they can live and let live without uh, you know, harassment, either from a criminal or from a cop. That, those problems have to be addressed, but uh, that's where the leadership has to take us next. Uh, maybe I'll jump in for a moment. I mean, Ed, I, um, I, I absolutely, you know, agree that leadership is essential. Um, you know, we talk about not counting New York out. Um, I'm not counting it out, but I know that it has got to, um, you know, that it needs to evolve though, to remain relevant. And that's what happened in 01. That's what happened in 08. The city did not go back to what it was before. It used a crisis to, to you know, 
to catapult itself into a new direction. I mean, I think about the way that the economy has expanded so dramatically, um, you know, over the last 20 years, you know, de um, you know, beyond the financial services industry into the supplied sciences, into life sciences, into the advanced manufacturing, into tech, and how tech has really taken root in the city and is really one of the most vital parts of our economy right now. So, um, you know, I do think that those bold ideas, uh, coupled with, you know, Jesse, I couldn't agree more about, you know, sort of the, you know, entrepreneurship and the, you know, it, it's a, it's a high level leadership, but it's also a grassroots, um, you know, happening at the same time. And that sort of is, you know, the spirit of New York. And that's what the density and the sort of proximity does is that we are more, you know, connected and in closer contact with our, um, you know, neighbors and uh, peers, you know, by necessity, but, you know, also people, you know, choose this lifestyle for a reason. Um, you know, I did want to talk for a moment about sort of, you know, I too was very inspired by the piece, um, you know, about the city streets and, you know, think about this sort of call for, um, you know, what happens between now and 10 years is that I do think that, uh, you know, I'd like to see more sort of prototyping and experimentation. I love the idea of thinking about streets in a public realm context where, um, you know, you know, streets are not just for cars. Why can they not be for, you know, outdoor schools? Why can we not sort of think about our um, streets as a public resource that will allow us to bridge into our future? Um, these can be sort of temporary interventions. They don't have to be forever, but I think that these temporary interventions um, have really demonstrated uh, to us that we can, you know, that we do have the real estate within the city. It just needs to be sort of reimagined. And I think we need to break out of the context of the previous assumptions of just assuming that streets are for one type of a user. Um, so not to just pick on streets, but I think about this incredible public resource that we have that connects literally, you know, the, from, you know, one part of the city to the other. And I do think we need to push ourselves to do more um, on that topic. I also just wanted to put a plug in here because I do think this is a ripe time for, uh, you know, technology. You know, we've talked about technology being a real winner sort of, you know, through this pandemic. Um, and connecting that back maybe to real estate and construction. Um, you know, uh, um, uh, there's, there's a lot of complexity in bringing people together um, on sites um, and on sites that are not a fixed permanent built environment. Um, and that is an active construction site where every day it's evolving. And I think that the pandemic, um, you know, combined with, uh, you know, advances in technology, it, it, can really lead to more sort of manufacturing, more prefabrication, which I think will help address so many aspects of what we've touched on, whether it's thinking about how to bring down costs, how to build more efficiently so that we can reach to deeper levels of affordability. Um, I think there is a moment to seize on this pandemic, which is, um, uh, you know, there, there is difficulty in bringing workers together in neighborhoods on these sites and a lot more ability to sort of control your environment when you're in a factory setting. So um, I'd like to um, envision, and I do believe that 10 years from now, we will have seen meaningful change in the way that buildings get built. Um, and given what a big, big part of our New York uh, economy uh, building and construction is, I think that'll be a game changer for our city. 
Good point. So I, I see we're nearing the end of time, so I, I think we'll wrap up. And I guess I wanted to end by thanking all the panelists and also Denise for, for running us through the, the survey. And then also just to reiterate Walter's message that uh, everybody should, should fill out a census form. And you can do it online if you're remote. And then I guess I'll talk my book a little bit and say I want to encourage people to come back to New York because I think that that's also an important part of, of our recovery. <laughs>